Perfect, guys. Hey, we have Alexander here from Hopeful Inc. Um, trying to talk more about uh, hacking COVID-19 and uh, what they're doing over there. Um, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ravi. Yeah, we, we chatted last week about, um, I think already this week, man, the, the, the time really kind of blends together. It's been a few days, but it feels like weeks have passed. Um, I mean, we're talking about you know, COVID-19 and how business as usual is no longer the case, how companies are operating under the new, uh, under this new kind of paradigm. And you were very uh, uh, forthright about um, how hopeful is proceeding forward. Uh, you're working out of, you're, uh, you're a DMZ company, am I correct? Correct. We are a DMZ incubator company. Perfect. And uh, you guys have transitioned pretty easily to working from home. I mean, being a startup gives you the flexibility uh, of, of changing a work environment. Uh, I mean, we're kind of used to that. But um, let's cut into that. How has COVID-19 affected you and what you guys are trying to accomplish? Absolutely. Well, we, we were really blessed in a lot of ways that we were a remote first company <coughs> COVID-19 hit. Uh, my co-founder himself is actually in the process of moving to Canada, originally from India. Uh, and we have, we have developers that work across the world. Um, I myself travel from the UK to Toronto, uh, where we do have operations on the UK side and the US as well. So for us, it wasn't too much of a harsh transition of office life to remote work life. We were already there. However, um, the transition really more than anything has been just seeing what the impact has been on nonprofits. Unfortunately, when you have this kind of economic impact, nonprofits and donations are really hit first and they've really lost access for the first time in history to a lot of their bread and butter fundraising in terms of having events, having physical events in person, having really things that are physically based in all kinds of ways. So. Right now, they've only been left to operate online. So that's, that's kind of where we've been trying to step in to help. Absolutely. And it, it's, it's a very interesting space because, like you said, nonprofits depend on a lot of fundraising activities, especially physical fundraising activities, fund themselves throughout the year on top of grants and other, um, other money-making mechanisms they have to fund their uh, projects and, and programs. So... The question I've had, I've talked to a few, a few nonprofits, is that even though your the amount of funding has gone down, uh, or your access to capital has gone down, your costs have also gone down. Just like a lot of companies, um, you know, working working remotely almost, a lot of uh, nonprofits have, are now spending money on on space, on on utility costs, and all these different things. So I guess I guess my question for a lot of nonprofits is that are they you know, trying to exist with this new reality by holding on to the old infrastructure that they had, um, the programs and the delivery methods, methods and all that, or are they trying to adapt and find out a completely new way of doing things? What do you, what do you see? Um, so we're really seeing a lot of adaptability from a lot of our partners and nonprofits in general in terms of switch especially those who are dealing with physical and social services. Um, we deal with uh, a number of charities that are both in Canada and the U.S. and specifically deal with uh, homelessness, elderly men's services, nursing homes, and those kinds of things. And they've really transitioned more to helping out on the mental health services, telehealth, things, and have found some early success transitioning. Unfortunately, though, nonprofits, and it's almost a corollary to the uh, restaurant industry and what's happening there. Nonprofits are not organizations that have a lot of cushion when it comes to these kinds of crises and being able to survive. So what we've seen and what some studies have come out with is that less than half of nonprofits in North America have six months of cash in terms of operating expenses. So they're really facing uh, a real existential crisis on there and to keep uh, to keep surviving. That's where we've been stepping in to help them really optimize their donations and try to find donors who are still available to provide them the support they need. But even though costs have gone down on tangible assets, those costs still do exist for staff. And they've, they've really felt that crunch in the last couple of weeks, just as everyone has to try and keep adjusting uh, as this crisis continues to develop. Awesome. Yeah, and it's kind of what uh, we're hearing as well is that um, the adjustments that everyone has to make, but nonprofit sector is especially interesting. Um, cool. Can you talk a bit more about Hopeful and what you guys are, how you guys work with them? Absolutely. What's the so, like? 
100%. So Hopeful is, uh, we are a startup that's just about a year old now. We've been growing quite a bit this year specifically. We're about 10 people strong now. Uh, work with charities in uh, North America as well as the UK. And we specifically help nonprofits go beyond uh, traditional, what we would call vanity metrics on social media, likes, impressions, shares, and really get into the quantitative data aspect of what is it that's actually giving them ROI and leading people to donate on their website and across major social media channels. So we do it in a number of different ways. We help them uh, take all of their social media information, consolidate into one platform, also integrate with major CRM platforms, Salesforce, Razor's Edge, and a number of others that we're currently starting to work with, um, and really making sure that they can immediately see what are people reacting to, what is actually driving their impressions, and what is it that's actually leading people to go to their chosen fundraising portal and hit that donate button. So what, right now, what we're doing is we actually just came out of beta for our base product at the end of February when this crisis started hitting. Uh, and we started developing our AI product, uh, which is known as Storytelling AI, which helps them actually quantitatively see what the commonalities are and help them create content. And we decided to keep that development going, but launch our base product in terms of basic analytics for our social media and donations immediately and go into the market. Uh, what that's done is by offering free access to all interested nonprofits, and that's available on our website or contacting myself. Um, we basically allow them to immediately get a handle on their social media and begin reaching out to potential donors on day one. No obligation, no questions asked while they're in this crisis. Uh, and we've seen a really significant spike in interest uh, from a lot of the market as a result of that. And it's really, even in that base product, being able to get a handle on the social media world, which is now their, basically their only option, um, has really given them a lot of help as they're trying to adjust away from the physical fundraising world to the online world. Cool. I mean, that's, that gives it quite a bit to digest. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, like where this came from? Like, what was the pain points you experienced to develop a platform like this? 100%. Um, so this, it's a funny story because it was almost one of those uh, accidental problems that one runs into. I myself uh, have been a salesperson in a number of different industries for years. Uh, originally was uh, in the United States working in Washington, D.C. in the media world and went to school there. Uh, and for Toronto myself, I started working in restaurant technology for Touch Bistro, uh, which is one of the kind of more well-known uh, Toronto startups. Joined there when I was around employee 90, left around 450. Uh, and what I found was is that I actually decided to go to the University of Toronto and get my degree in computer science uh, uh, just about two years ago now, and helping using those skills on my sales side and web development skills to help nonprofits really get a handle on their data and really start driving donations. What I found when I was working with those nonprofits pro bono is that there really was a huge gap on what they were actually experiencing in terms of their data. So they had really no real mechanisms in place to see what was being put out on social media, what was actually working for them, and even just basic handles on their donors, where they were coming from, demographics to target, just basically throwing things at the wall and seeing what maybe worked, what didn't work, but no hard data keeping behind it. So took that together, found my co-founder and then uh, built a basic MVP last year. We interviewed over a hundred nonprofits in Canada and the United States, uh, and then really started growing in the ball rolling from there. And it was just, it was a very simple problem for an industry that uh, a lot of people unfortunately overlook in terms of advanced technologies. Uh, and it seems to be going great so far and really providing a lot of value. Perfect. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool journey that um, you worked in the private sector, uh, worked in a few tech companies and solved this problem and figured out a way to provide solutions for this industry. And how is the, so selling to nonprofits is a pretty tricky gambit, right? This is already an a organization or a series of organizations that minimize um, their expenditures. How was the traction trying to, uh, I guess, approach nonprofits as a client, as a consumer with a, with a technology solution? Were they open to it? Were they looking for something like this? Or was it requiring a lot of handholding and training? Um, so that's, it's really funny you ask that because 
because even when we speak to investors and when we were first starting out, that's a very common misconception in the nonprofit space. Myself, when entering the space, I've been a volunteer and a board member for a number of nonprofits for years. I'm familiar with the industry. I'm familiar with how the budgeting side of it works. And that's actually a very big myth. Nonprofits at, their, at the end of the day, although they, they of course have less working capital, are still capable of deploying capital for needs that they immediately identify. Are there extra steps involved for larger organizations? Sure. But from our early traction right now, our close rate is approaching 75% from our early days of selling. Uh, and that's because we were simply able to fill a need. And really when it came down to it, um, we made sure of course that our pricing was consistent with the nonprofit sector. We are a SaaS product, but it really wasn't a big question of we don't have the money. It was, is this going to be the return on the investment that we need as one would have in a private sector conversation? and would proceed well from there. So at the end of the day, you do have to be a little bit more careful to really provide the return on value for a nonprofit, but it's a, everyone is a person, everyone understands you put in X and you get Y, and that's how we've been working, seeing a lot of success in the early days. Yeah, no, um, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, like one of the things that I like is like the 70% close rate is a pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing for any salesperson to hear about. Um, so that, that's like a, 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 a beautiful number because that shows you have this product in a market that's demanding of it, right? Uh, and that, that's phenomenal to have, especially as a SaaS product to move that 75, 70% of the customers you're talking to are agreeing that the problem that they want to convert over. Can you talk a little about that? Like you said you worked on a few uh, nonprofits, can you talk about what you worked on and like why uh, you're so concerned with the nonprofit industry? Like, what's your mindset there? Absolutely. I think the nonprofit industry is really the tip of the spear on advancing societal critical needs social services, homelessness, mental health you name it, there's a nonprofit that's helping advance it because that is their direct mission-driven right. It's not a distraction agenda that may sometimes exist in the for-profit world. They are the ground zero of solving the world's problems and deserve to have the, the technologies and the products in order for them to achieve those goals. For myself, my family has been heavily involved in philanthropy in Toronto for a very long time. I myself have, have really just kind of touched base all over the place. Involved with the Regent Park School of Music, uh, fairly informed, helping speak to some of their uh, some of their pupils that are there. It's a very very noble institution in Regent Park, uh, helping underprivileged children achieve their goals uh, through music, uh, from anything from DJing all the way through to the violin. Uh, so that's the most recent one I've been working on. But really, Sorry, what, what was the name of the organization? Uh, I'm going to get that up. Uh, yeah, it was the Regent Park School of Music. Regent Park, gotcha. Um, so that's a really noble cause that uh, I've been trying to been help out on on a fairly informal basis, but really it's all over the map over the years on on where I can help out. I try. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, where did like that uh, drive come from? Uh, I mean, that's that's really curious. Right? There's a lot of people talk about helping nonprofits or working with them, but don't can't justify the time commitment to move forward into that. Uh, where did where did your drive come from to get involved with the music center at the Regent Park and other other profits? So it's, uh, so the Regent Park School of Music was actually a family connection of mine that I became aware of uh, just when I was starting football from one of our now advisory board members. Um, and I just immediately jumped on that uh, when, I, when I saw that opportunity. So that was a really good, uh, a really good cause to be working on there. Um, but in general, for me, I always had a passion to try and try and do some good in the world, especially when we have these kinds of unprecedented global pandemics. At the end of the day, everyone does start coming together and you really see how people can shine. And that's what nonprofits do every single day, even when there isn't a, a quarantine happening with every single person. So it was really just something I've had in my mind my entire life. And this is just one, one big way I'm trying to take a shot at helping them out. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I like this direction of this conversation because uh, I like what you're talking to when you said nonprofits are, are change makers, right? They're, they're a mechanism to make change, real world changes. And um, so talking about that, like, it, corona, like the whole pandemic right now has opened up this door, opened up the floor actually, 
for widespread systematic, systematic, uh, systematic change, right? Nonprofits, they serve a sector, they serve a, a problem pain point, much like a consumer product in the private sector would. They create, they produce programs and, and projects to serve a certain, a certain base and to make, and make certain changes in the world, which is true. But COVID-19 and the pandemic has kind of disrupted everything and kind of opened the door for wide scale systemic change and for infrastructure change. So one of the deeper conversations we've had with people coming on the podcast is what is like a crazy change you would want to see in the world that we could implement because everything's kind of down right now. So that's a tough question because there's so much, I think that from a cultural perspective, we're going to see systemic change in so many different industries as a result of this nonprofit world. Even myself, I've been trying to closely track this. I think that in a perfect world, they will really help drive uh, a lot of support for mission-driven organizations even more so than they've been growing in the last few years, seeing the impact that they have. So I think ultimately it will be a positive benefit for nonprofits uh, as they come out of this and as we return to some semblance of normalcy. Um, but from a cultural shift, because there's so many moving parts, real estate will never be the same. Restaurants will never be the same. It's hard to tell where the pieces all land at this point. So I guess let's we, if we check back in in a few months, it may become more evident. But I would say at this point, it would just be speculating on, on how much different the world will be when we come out of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting thing is the changes that have come out of it. But I guess, I guess it's not a question, but the, uh, the opening of an idea. All right. So we've had guests come on and talk about how education can change, how we can change education system because it's open for discussion because it, it, we're trying to figure out patchwork systems for that. Right. Um, we at BlueMax, I mean, what we started off was, it was a way to, uh, distribute like high income labor um, across a distributed workforce. So how can I, uh, as like a high level person, wake up in the morning, oh, check my phone, see a bunch of tasks that I can do if I want to and get paid for it. Yeah. Right. So like that's something that really interests me. Like, so how, do, how does, how does, how does the labor market change? How does, how does, um, I guess the interface between those that provide uh, services and those that build companies to kind of change, right? Um, that's what we're really, really interested in. With the nonprofit sector, right? I mean, are things changing completely as like um, the communities they service are obviously cha changing completely affected by this, right? The, the sectors and industries they service are completely affected by this. Has it, has it been a difficult for you to, uh, to, trans uh, to communicate this kind of need for um, your platform and what you're trying to do to these to these nonprofits while they're still adjusting to these changes. Um, like what's like I'm trying to I'm trying to paint a picture about the industry. Absolutely, I would say that it has not been difficult for us because online giving was already something that was increasing about 17% year over year for the last four to five years. So the trend we were essentially catching the wave that was already happening in the nonprofit industry. All this is doing is massively accelerating that wave. I think that the industry, and this is maybe my, my, my hopeful, no pun intended, uh, outlook on it, is it'll go back to being much more grassroots, much more diffuse in terms of the support that comes out of it. There's been a really big contraction in the last decade or so in the number of donors who are donating and really, really concentrating on just a few high ticket donors. I would think that after the impact so many grassroots organizations are having around the city, the country, the world, uh, it will really start democratizing again on just the everyday family making sure to give to their organization just that's down the street uh, and having that uh, for their yearly tax returns and their charitable donations like it, like it used to be and really helping uh, have that rising tide lift all ships. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's talk a little bit about, about those kind of patterns you're kind of seeing. Um, what would you, what would you think? Like, is there a type of, I guess, um, persona for those who to donate or to or give to these nonprofits? Um, what do they look like? Are they specific to each nonprofit, to a sector? Like, what are the commonalities and I guess the type of people that donate nonprofits? So the common so commonalities they're definitely going to be. Uh, 
sector vertical driven, let's say. Generally speaking, they're primarily people donate to their belief system. So religious institutions, health-based institutions, social services to some extent, and then tapering down from there. Um, but we are now currently in the middle of a generational shift where the older generation which traditionally giving is currently on the decline and millennials which have been raised with a much more mission-driven mindset i.e myself who's now running a mission-driven company and the rest of my team um really starting to see what is their what is the impact that their donations are having so while donations are increasing the way that the millennial generation is uh, is donating is much more targeted to what their specific non-religious, non-health causes. A lot of environmental, a lot of social services, huge increases in mental health awareness is driving a huge increase in mental health service donation. And I think it's going to, again, be part of that trend I talked about of a big democratization and leveling of what people donate to rather than kind of the traditional religious and health institutions. So I think everything across the board will likely increase as people's beliefs become more diffuse, their donations will become more diffuse. So does this mean like people are more concerned about like buying, shoe, buying from companies like Tom Shoes, which is not just a shoe company or fashion outlet, but they have a cause behind it. Is that what you mean by mission-driven uh, mission buyers versus like a newer generation, old generation? What, what, what kind of examples can you give us? Absolutely. Um, so there's a significant amount of studies that do exist about where the where millennial buying is growing. So Tom's Shoes is an excellent example of that. And they were essentially the quintessential mission-driven successful sales campaign. But statistically, it's in the double digits of, a, of millennials are more likely to buy the products from companies that are either sustainable or have a mission no problem, or have a mission-driven output behind them. So for example, um, if say an old Navy and a Nike were to go up against them, but Nike were to say, okay, we're going to be donating an extra pair of shoes to an underprivileged family, then nine times out of 10, the millennials will likely be donating there. And that is a very new change in thinking um, that's only been happening in this last 20 years as, as we've all been coming of age. And it's only going to accelerate as, as Gen Z comes uh, comes onto their own as well. Perfect. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, I'm a little interrupted there. We're talking. No, my, my dog started barking here. But um, cool. Just to get get into that, can you let's go more into that? What what does that mean to a mission driven company? Um, is it just aligning yourself to a cause? Is it deeper than that? How do you communicate value? It's, so that's, that's actually a really good question because mission-driven is a really, it seems fairly straightforward, but it's incredibly important in terms of its authenticity. You have to be mission-driven in terms of actually being mission-driven and aligning it with your brand, not with being mission-driven and specifically doing it just for the sales and marketing because people do see through that. So you have to be able to make sure that when you are mission-driven, the entire organization is behind it because it does increase internal organizational cohesion as well within your company and keeps, uh, keeps good employees in the door. But you have to be able to keep that going for a long period of time. One sales campaign in order to be sustainable does not make you mission-driven and it does come across as potentially being uh, essentially opportunistic. So when you have a mission-driven organization, you have to weave it through the whole fabric. You have to have every meeting start with a reminder of why you're doing what you're doing. You have to make sure that every piece of sales and marketing has some kind of social good attachment to it in order to build that culture and actually make it authentically mission-driven rather than just a sales campaign that feels good. No, that, that's great. I, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a missing piece uh, for a lot of new age companies is that they want to be mission-driven, but they don't know how to communicate um, what their mission is, or even isolate how they're how they're driving that kind of change, or being part of that change. Um, can you walk us through a little bit about your own culture at Hopeful and uh, what the mission you're on and how you communicate that? Absolutely. We so we ourselves, uh, myself, my our chief marketing officer John Paul De Silva, my co-founder Asan, um, and the rest of the team. Everyone has had some sort of experience dealing with nonprofits, dealing with specific social issues, whether it be 
uh, growing up in Malvern, where there's a lot of drugs and crime and having to have bars on your windows and really fearing for your own safety on a day-to-day, -day, whether it just be growing up in the slums of India and dealing with that scale of poverty. At a base level, we make sure now that anyone we are hiring has some sort of experience either dealing with the issues that nonprofits are tackling or have worked with a nonprofit themselves. So that at its core is where we work into it. On a personal level, we also make sure that we provide as much internal support to the entire team for whatever they need, regardless of the work company. If there's something going on with someone's parents, we make sure, for example, health issues, we make sure to pull together and provide any support they can and really, really build that internal company family aspect, I like to think of it. Not just doing it as like you're coming to work and leaving. No, you're here with a real team that's going to support you no matter what's happening. If we had to, for example, if, uh, if a company had to let someone go because due to COVID-19, and we were to have to do that, we're with them still, we check in with them every day, we make sure that anything we can do to support them, even though they're not working for Hopewell at this current point in time, we're still there to help in the long term. So we really try to build it from the ground up for anyone we bring on. Cool, sorry, I got a little distracted by you mentioned, who, uh, who's from Melbourne? Uh, so John Paul, so he himself is actually on the call here. Uh, he's just listening in. Uh, he himself is from Melbourne. Perfect. Respect. <laughs> My wife's from Melbourne too. Uh, so are you, where are you from in the city, Alex? Uh, so I grew up in Northern Richmond Hill, uh, and then I slowly worked my way down over the years. So now I, I'm down in uh, King and Spadina. So I went and pretty much went straight down the line over the years and made it. Nice. <laughs> that's yeah, of course. That's that's convenient. North York connects right down to, uh, to uh, Toronto. You're right. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's really interesting cause about helping localities, especially from where you're from. So a little bit of a background of ourselves. Uh, me and Henry are also from Scarborough. Henry's my partner on, on Glomex. We're from the same high school, and uh, and for with our cause when we started this was really to like how do we um, you know better put a map on Scarborough. It was like an indirect kind of play we had idea because you know we went to the university i went to the university of toronto scarborough bluemex started out of the incubation center there at the university of toronto scarborough where i was the entrepreneur residence and uh, we worked also um after we outgrew the incubation center last year we went and worked on a puddle share space which is a new core space in scarborough and the main reason we did that rather than going downtown to where most of our clients are or in, in some other place where it probably been like cheaper rent was just the value that a space like that was provided to Scarborough. And it means something more to us individually because we grew out of there, that we're supporting the region and people who come out of that region. And through that kind of communication, like that, oh, you know, we're having our podcast here in Scarborough. Oh, our office is here. You know, um, by sharing our address at Scarborough, not just saying Toronto, on our website and stuff like that, we have run across with so many professionals who grew up in Melbourne. Uh, entrepreneurs from uh, who who, uh, who are you know live in Scarborough. A lot of our t technical talent that works in a lot of tech companies, a lot of companies downtown, still live there. I'm talking to VCs who live in Melbourne, right? Currently, that's where their parents live. That's where they go. They go home for the weekends, um, right? And uh, it's it's interesting how the dynamics of the city has shifted, but. Communicating that value of like, hey, we, we came from this one low-income space of the city um, has indirectly got us very closely knit to guests and clients that we talk to that we wouldn't have necessarily have a layer of connection, right? And it's been an interesting trend for us to uh, us internally, just because we you know we we state that you know we're from Scarborough, just that you know, we're local Scarborough guys, and we're staying local. All this, people who kind of been through the same kind of um, the same kind, some kind of background, connects with that, right? And I think that's really what the real the real power of being mission driven is, is that it's not it's it's not just like a a layer you put on top of your business saying that hey this is what makes it authentic. No, it is a layer of connectivity. It just connects people at a deeper level rather than just more part of service vibes for me. I, I solve a pain point for you, right? And you're saying that you know this is what we believe and if you jointly believe in the values right we can transact together precisely right? and I, it, it, sorry to interrupt but i really i think yeah. you put it a really good way robbie of 
the building the lines of communication. How nonprofits essentially one some one day many many moons ago someone saw an issue in their community that a company was not dealing with, and that they didn't want to turn into the business they simply wanted to help. That's what started an entire sector that is now a 1.75 trillion dollar sector worldwide of just trying to help people and build those lines of communication. It's all about building bridges within the company, but also building it across every interaction that you have. I think that's a really, really good way of actually describing what a mission-driven organization is. Absolutely. Like my my one beef is that it's it's really hard to. I guess remove the capitalist out of this equation um, when it comes to nonprofits, because you say yes, we're a nonprofit and we don't—it's a profit. And yet there are large nonprofits out there who pay their board members and their, or the, sorry, their CEOs and execs at equivalent of market rate in the private sector. You know, millions of dollars sometimes in bonuses get paid out to nonprofit CEOs. Um, a lot of bureaucracy in these large nonprofits exist and tie up essential services. Um, from being distributed and funds being distributed. And one of my biggest beefs was um, like the Red Cross when like the uh, tsunami hit in 2008 and uh, uh, the, the hurricanes went through the Caribbean. Now, all this aid was given out, was donated to them, but it was never distributed because they could not agree on internal policy. On the meantime, that the CEO of the company received his quarterly, I think yearly or quarterly bonus around the same time when people were donating all these funds and it wasn't being distributed, none of the auctions were being taken, right? So I guess like, what is the new age equivalent of just like, you know, of the, of the parental change of like the millennials and, and, and genera- generation Y and Xers coming in and demanding these mission-driven companies and demanding more from their, uh, from the, from the, from the, from the, uh, the companies they transact with and want to support new levels of nonprofits how can we restructure or structure these nonprofits better or more equitably or more transparently? Like, what are you seeing right now? How are, how are new forms of systems being built, right? Uh, using technology, right, uh, to better communicate value if they truly want to help and not be just like an enterprise? Absolutely. And this is, so that, that's a really big question, right? So that's a question that affects millions and millions of people and billions of dollars. Um, I would say that a lot of new models in the fundraising sector have emerged that really help move that along. And it's really part of the global trend of eliminating waste, trying to be more, trying to be more uh, aware of your surroundings, not wasting resources and really, and really getting efficiency for what you actually have. of the 100 model that a lot of nonprofits are now adopting where 100 where basically 100% of everything coming in goes directly to the cause they're supporting um, just to give a shout out actually our first client ever who they've been with us since we were in our MVP stage over a year ago and I'm, I'm very good friends with the organization's leadership now uh, it's a nonprofit actually based in Minnesota called lift up they were the ones who first introduced me deeply to the 100 model. They support causes all over the world and there's zero cents in waste on any of their donations come in. If any donations go in, then they are automatically sent directly to whatever cause is being supported. And it's just a beautifully, beautifully run organization. And now they're really on, the, on multiple fronts in the United States helping fight COVID-19 in many different states. So I think going to that very efficient and lean model as one would say in startups of you again at you put in x you get y that's what people are going to be focusing on and really making sure to report clearly on where things are going when we were first looking at this issue from a hopeful perspective that's why we started building out a lot of reporting options and really getting onto that social media side because right now money was going in for the marketing side of things on social media and online giving but nonprofits had no idea what they were doing with Essentially, they were saying, okay, we're going to post things, but we really don't know what this is going to lead to in terms of donations. By being able to automatically report on that hard data from Hopeful, for instance, then we can actually say, okay, this is X that you put in, and this is your Y, and we can help eliminate any potential waste that's going in and really help them optimize that way. So that's really, we're trying to tackle one small piece of that very large puzzle. But I think overall, moving to these newer models that are that are very, very clear on what goes in must come out is going to be where the industry will be moving. 
Sorry, I was on mute there. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that's 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 really cool, right? Like a zero cents wasted model where direct donations go out. Does the company have what did the company use to track that? Right? Is there any way to be like this is what was what I gave this is what what the end user got, right? Or the end end person receiving got. Um, because that's one of the, the promises unfulfilled by a lot of these networks is they send you a letter or send you uh, this saying that it's been given. But with technology solutions, I feel like we can do better, be more transparent with organizations. Um, and I know a few organizations that are doing it, I can't just think of it right now. Uh, are, is anyone doing anything like well, at a deeper level, I guess, of showing transparency? Well, all of this transparency, all of the tools to make that happen are available in the for-profit world. Unfortunately, and, and this is what really frustrates me, is that the nonprofit sector is, is almost forgotten on a lot of these technologies. That's why we are one of the few companies that are bringing machine learning technologies to the nonprofit sector and looking at what other advanced technologies now can we bring to the space to really get them to the private sector side of things. So there are nonprofits that simply use tools that already exist and have existed in the private sector for years to be very transparent on, on where these things are going. And for instance, the, what attracted me to the Regent Park School of Music is their letters that they give are multi-page booklets and it literally goes line by line of we donated, like you donated 1.6 million, let's say is a hypothetical number. Um, and this is exactly where each piece went and there's, you know exactly where everything went at all times. And it's very clear what's happening and it's very, very easy to- That's beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's the capabilities are there. Um, it's just making sure they're implemented. That's why we actually target nonprofits in the smaller to medium size. We want to make sure that any younger nonprofits that come to us, we start working with them on basic data handling practices. Even if they have no social media set up, we say, okay, these are best practices to get you started on the data management and the reporting side and help them grow from there rather than the larger nonprofits that do have kind of a more business aspect to them nowadays. Gotcha. And uh, I mean, that's the interesting thing, right? Like I think a lot of companies now are, have the time and the, and the resources to make transitions to these kind of tools more. Uh, I really hope that more of them take, out, take, on that, take on that role uh, and take on that responsibility of doing so. Because um, one, of, one of the, one of the sad realities of what happened in 2008, to the, sorry, not 2008, in 2018 with uh, the whole spike in the decentralization movement, right? They got completely taken over by cryptocurrency and IPOs. But the promise behind the decentralization movement about having a triple layer ledger, right? For, for account, when it comes to accountability. So now you have a two, two level a ledger is each company has two levels of books, right? So um, that it just keeps you more accountable internally. And, and, and if any external factor comes in, you can keep, keep tra tabs of it. But the idea of a triple ledger where like, um, there's a universal ledger where not just one company, but all the company, all, everyone transacted from the individuals to the companies to the services rendered gets kind of logged into like an open ledger book, right? And this is one, there's so many projects about this, but what, I, what I'm thinking the power, I think the real power behind things is about transparency. Imagine opening up all that and showing as a system, as like a, a layer of, of, um, uh, of, I guess, of improvement, nonprofits all kind of bind together in this technology solution and show where are the money going, what's all going, what are the changing effects going on? And how do we measure and show that, yes, each individual person not just contributed, contributed, contributed money and this is where it went to, but what is the change that came after? What are the impacts came after? Like what are the economic footprint left behind by what you did, right? Even if it's small and negligible, what is the total impact of everyone doing these kind of behaviors, right? Um, so there was, so many, there was a few like, uh, decentralized projects behind this, got completely swallowed up by the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency craze, and we don't hear much about them anymore. But I think like that, that itself is a wicked tool and, and, and powerful idea, right? Just a pure analytic of showing and at a wide scale and at a micro level, macro and micro level, what are the economic impacts of, of the, all these social activities, of nonprofits, of, of social giving, of cause-driven behavior, right? Um, I, think, I think if we can have that as a transparent layer showing what's happening, that will do a radically change everything, right? It'll change the physical, it'll change the mentality of people. Right, rather than 
a top-down approach of being told, hey, this is where your money went to, you feel like you're part of grassroots by contributing what you did. 100%. And we've, we have verbatim heard that. So impact, essentially impact assessment and impact reporting has been described mm -hmm. as the holy grail of potential nonprofit products to us. But a number of organizations, big and small, that we work with. So my, I'm very happy that the sector itself is aware of like that is where they want to go. We have some things in our pipeline that is going to try and help out on that. It's a little early to discuss, but that's, that's exactly it. If you can finish the, let's call it the supply chain of impact of when they put it, when a donor clicks that donate checkout button, and you can immediately tell them where that went and what was that impact, even quantitative and qualitative. Did it improve quality life, quality of life in a village in Mali from building five bricks in this well? let's say. If you can complete that chain, I think it has the potential to really revolutionize how the whole sector reports and make it um, very, very uh, transparent and easy to fundraise that way. And that's, that's something we're looking at on our end as well. Yeah. I mean, so I, want to, I want to take your, uh, take your, get your thoughts on this concept, right? So Ray Dalio calls it radical. Ray Dalio runs uh, Bridgewater Capital, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world recently running a bunch of talks about uh, his book's principles. We're talking about the, his, his principles he has, uh, has developed over his life and the framework he has developed to build these principles, which is, which is what he's uh, encouraging everyone to do. And he talks about the idea of, of radical transparency, about the ability to be so transparent that you get feedback off of real world metrics, right? By putting yourself out there and putting out real world metrics, taking the bullshit off the table, it kind of it forces you to deal with in real world reality rather than the illusionary reality that you, people sometimes build around themselves and their companies and their firms and what they're trying to do. So the idea, idea of radical transparency, he's talking about social construct that makes us more, uh, more accountable to our actions and what we do, right? So make, make, you, make you more real world problem solving. Now the problem is radical transparency is it costly for a company or a person to be radically transparent, right? Uh, in isolation, or is it only, only viable if everybody does it at the same time? Like for example, uh, if a nonprofit is completely open about the income coming in and where the money is going out and showing the exact paper trail open to everybody, does that put them uh, at a benefit or at, at a disadvantage? And if it is, is it only if a lot of people do it at the same time, or can people do? Can people take upon that kind of uh, kind of can capability by themselves? So that that's sense? a so as funny. It's funny you bring up uh, principles. Phenomenal book. Uh, I have it on my shelf just here behind behind my computer. So the I would say it is a 100% benefit to practice radical transparency with one caveat being you need to, it works if you build it from day one. If you try, if you are not radically transparent and then you decide to be radically transparent, I think the, da the damage that trends potentially cause to an organization is catastrophic. There needs to be from day one, the cultures and the practices and the mechanisms in place to make sure that that radical transparency is always running. You can't open the door to radical transparency when you already have existed in a non-transparent state. It just doesn't, it doesn't mesh well with a business plan or a business model that hasn't been used to that and reporting that hasn't been used to that. So from a nonprofit, from a, especially a nonprofit's perspective, I would say that even if other nonprofits are not doing it, it will 100% benefit them to be as radically transparent as possible. As I mentioned, I know for myself, I've been attracted to the nonprofit organizations that I just pick up the booklet and I say, wow, I know exactly where their money came in and where it went. That's something that I can really get behind because it builds that trust between you, whether it be your donor, your customer, your free user, what have you, but it needs to be draft work. Otherwise, it, you're going to come off disingenuous, potentially, or you're just, it's going to start really damaging the fabric of the, of the company you've built up. Right. So how do you, how do you practice radical transparency? What, what would you say put it? Um, I would say that so from, our, from our perspective, since we are still very young, we just try to practice it in 
terms of our day-to-day interactions, making sure everyone is fully comfortable speaking about personal as well as business as well, and really putting in those kind of building blocks. We make sure all of our recordings of our meetings, all of our documentation is fully available to the entire team, including senior leadership documentation. On our Google Drive, if anyone on our team wants to take a look at one of our term sheets that came in, if they want to look at some of our decks, some of our internal like patents that we're working on for our IP, that is available and they can ask me, they can ask me, my co-founder or any of our board members questions whenever they want. That's what we're starting to do now. We started from the beginning, but we're hoping that as we continue to scale up, that's going to lead to more and more radical transparency as those extra mechanisms start coming into play. Um, And then for nonprofits, what we generally do uh, is a lot of surveys, a lot of interaction with your donors, asking as many questions, even if it makes you look like you kind of don't know what you're doing in the early days don't still ask because then you a have that information and you start building those relationships where you know that they know that you're working towards a certain goal and they're more willing to support you whether it be a customer or when our original customers when we came to them with our mvp which was it did not look pretty at all they they stuck with us for over a year and we only joined the market recently and they were with us right through right through it because they knew exactly what we were trying to do they knew the hiccups we were working on they knew every kind of piece of our business so you have to really just go out there and be as open as possible um just asking questions and making sure that even if you look like an idiot frankly you make sure that people know that this is all going towards a good cause at the end yeah absolutely i'm really liking this train of uh, talk and um, you talking about uh, especially your company culture of openness and transparency. How, how many people do you have uh, at Hopeful right now? So we have 10 people in total. Uh, so it's myself, uh, our sales team is just a team of three right now. We are primarily developers. We also do have a number of uh, volunteer interns that uh, come from us from the Queen's Center of Social Impact, which is a phenomenal institution, part of Queen's Commerce uh, in Kingston. Uh, so we've been working with them, and then we also have uh, we also just have uh, a couple of advisory board members. For example, we just had uh, the former global grants director of the Elton John AIDS Foundation join our board as an independent director uh, and as a thought leader. So we are we're really continuing to grow every day, even throughout this response. Still planning on growing uh, as things progress. That's amazing. That's great to hear, and I'll be really interested in hearing more about how you practice this kind of culture, especially at scale. Um, Cause you're right. Um, it, it's one thing to do it as a small, tiny organization and practicing it, but as you scale upwards and you have, you know, 50, 200 employees, how, how do you be transparent to them all? Do they deserve to be all have access to information? And if they do, how do you track security? Because you have fiduciary responsibility as well to protect yourself as, as an organization. Right? I mean, these are all factors. Does it come down to the technology being utilized to track this behavior? Or does it come down to more like processes you put in place? Right? And it's, so this, uh, and the name is forgetting me, so I apologize, but there was a, a, a business leader that I believe uh, was from Japan or South Korea originally. It said, basically all the tools and practices that you have completely break at multiples of 10. What works at 10 people doesn't work at 100 people. What works at 100 people doesn't work at 1,000 people. And there's there's a few milestones in between there. And I first read about that when we were just starting to scale. We pretty much went from four people to 10 in the span of about a month and a half this year. Sorry, who's the, who's the author who wrote about that? I can't remember the name, unfortunately. What was the, do you remember the book or what it from? It was an article. I'll try to find it. I, uh, I can. I can definitely share it from. I can put in the YouTube comments. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm terrible with remembering names, unfortunately. But um, what I when I first read that, I really keep that in mind and really try to think ahead on how can I implement these radical pra- transparency practices ahead of time. So that when we do reach that level of scale, it's not everything collapses and we have to rebuild it. It's okay, this has already been in place for a few months. Like, let's just we'll wait until we hit 100 people. And then when we're at person 80, then we'll start looking at this again. So just making sure to stay on top of when I, when I notice things are starting to 
change culturally, not get shaky, but you just feel that things are starting to get a little creaking under the weight, then don't wait for the floor to collapse under you. Just go in, do some reading, make the changes. Things will break while you're changing them, but then when it actually comes time to do it, you're already done. Yeah. How do you, how do you, I guess the question is, how do you keep track of these change or feel the weight of the situation when you're not dealing with these, your employees or your, and your coworkers and co-founders on a daily basis physically? Like you're working virtually environment. A lot of times all you have is voice or, right? How do you keep a gouge of the culture and uh, how things feel? Virtual. Um, it's definitely a challenge. Um, so our tech team is primarily based in Southeast Asia and my co-founder has been in India pretty much the entire time we've been working together. So now that he's moving to Canada, that's going to be one of those shifts that we have to address as well is now that the, now that we're all con kind of consolidating in our Toronto office, how is that going to impact the culture as we go away from that remote work side of things? So that's a separate question. But for us, uh, I, we make it a point to be really, really tight with our team. We always meet every Friday, no matter what, um, and give basically start every meeting off with, how's everyone doing? Not work-related, like, how's your families? Do you guys need help or anything? We call people out. Everyone goes down at the company and talks about how they're doing. And then we make sure to do any kind of recognitions on how people have been doing this week. You want to recognize the tech team for releasing new functionality. Does one person want to recognize another person for helping them out on fixing a backend issue? That, those little things have really helped. Also very consistent communication. I have one-on-ones multiple times a week with each of our team members, especially now with the COVID-19 response, checking in with them all the time. Uh, and just making sure that communication is just always going in some form or another, even with a 12, a 10 and a half hour time difference between Toronto and India. It's, and it really helped consolidate our team. We had to do, we had to make some hard decisions when the COVID crisis happened in regards to our runway and the entire team was made aware of it. And we had zero problems going on with it because the team was already very tight with each other. And we knew we had to make some decisions to keep moving forward. And, we were going from there. So it's just making, just keep talking to people. It's really, when I hear the challenges of remote work, it's, we have technologies now that it's you and I could be speaking in the same room as we're talking now. And it's really not too different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I agree with you. Like the technology allows us to cross so much, uh, so much ver uh, vertical space, right? Like, and uh, transcend that and connect people actually more. Even if it's less bandwidth, we receive from them. <coughs> but um, that's cool. I, I guess I have one more thing, one last thing. I just want to get your thoughts on, right? Just because of the nature of this conversation. So the idea of leadership, right? So so in leadership in the tech world, we symbolize and we you know we, there's a worship of Steve Jobs methodology of leadership, you know, using the reality of the distortion field which is in almost an opposite spectrum of um, what we did, we're talking about, right? radical transparency. So the vertical the disruption field is leaders like visionary leaders, especially, you know, because they fall in the spectrum of visionaries versus, um, wow, I'm, I'm blanking on this term. But anyways, uh, what Steve Jobs used to do was, you know, he'll have an analyst tell him, like, you know, oh, we only sold 4,000 units this weekend or this, this quarter. And he'll literally take that information, step into a meeting and be like, congrats, everyone. We sold 20,000 units last weekend or last, uh, last quarter, right? He would, always, he would shift reality to a degree within himself, like within himself to make himself fully believe it. And he would convince other people to join on, even though they knew it wasn't the truth, right? Because it goes on to the, it goes on the idea that uh, humans feel four different levels of truth. Subjective truths and objective truths being the top of tiers, right? So objective truths are truths uh, that are true regardless of what you believe, where subjective truths are true because of what you believe. So he would force people to choose between the objective truths of reality and the subjective truths of Apple, the company culture. So we believe that we're killing this and we're gonna keep killing this. Regardless of what the numbers came from the outside world, this is our numbers, right? And that's the kind of leadership he built to kind of create this kind of crazy workforce that would put more of themselves, more of their souls into this, pro into the projects because they were so tightly bound in their own reality. 
right? And versus leaders like Ray Dalio talk about radical transparency being like openness is the way to go as long as they're true and real to ourselves and get feedback from real world examples and build actual mechanisms within real, that, 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 are, that, are, that are feedback tools to the real world and what's actually happening, right? So I'm really interested in this idea between this, these two cultures of two types of leadership and two types of ideologies and the blend between them. Because tech comes with that kind of idea of, you know, of, like, of creating your own reality and living within your own bubble to, 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 to forge the kind of truths you do. But you know, working with like, especially in nonprofits, more financial sector, you have to contend with this more actual truthful undertaking, right? More, uh, yeah. what, are you, what are you doing? Um, well, I actually would disagree when you say it's two different types of leadership methodologies. Ray Dalio and the Steve Jobs methods of thinking are not mutually exclusive methods of thinking. It's truly on two kind of parallel sliders in my mind. We practice radical transparency, but I have been told I'm often a very optimistic person. So you can take any, you give all of the news that is available. You give the objective truth but then you always have to make sure to frame it in such a way as you want to frame it. So these deals are closing, you have some concerns, but we do this and then if we close this one, it leads to this opportunity and you basically chain things together. So it's not too, it's not you have to be radically transparent, even if it's complete doom and gloom. You we have to be able to communicate clearly to your team, okay, this happened, it may not be great, but this is what we're doing to address issues X, Y, and Z. And basically make it like you always make sure to pitch it forward as something optimistic and, and hopeful because you need to be able to have that that kind of optimism to keep driving that kind of team. I don't I don't really agree with my style of leadership of what Steve Jobs did when he's like, okay, we're going to triple our sales numbers, even though that's not true. Um, I think that just being able to always have that next move in place and always be sharing with your team what you're thinking is how you build those, those like killer teams. I myself, even though I am the CEO and co-founder of Hopewell, I treat everyone on our C-suite team as basically partners and we are an advisory council. Everyone trades ideas, everyone is aware of where we're moving in each and every department and we make sure we can share ideas cross-functionally and that way everyone has a piece of insight into how everyone's doing and you always have an abundance of different answers to problems to go with. And that's, and that's really what we found success in, in building up that. Sorry, I was on mute again. I was gonna say, I was so, like, ah, he's on mute again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, really interesting take from your part. Thank you for sharing. Um, uh, what I was trying to go for is the idea of this being a spectrum where it's like these are extremes. And it yeah. feels like what you're saying is like, you kind of need a blend between both, a healthy blend between both, exactly. both, 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 both ends, like, you know? And um, yeah, so I guess all leaders kind of have a natural blend between the two of these, what, what framing truths in their own reality versus being clear about objectives and guidelines you're working under. And you're, you have to communicate that daily uh, in, a, in a way, right? And there is a strain, I guess, on leadership and exercising this muscle and absorbing the right information and being able to communicate it in a clear fashion to achieve the goal, the end that you want to achieve with your team, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's basically, if you want to put it that, it's like a layer. You have the objective truth and the radical transparency is your bedrock. But then what that topsoil is of how you want to be projecting the way the organization is going as a leader, that's, that's really where that muscle has to get worked. And you just have to remember that you always, always lead with that objective truth bedrock, no matter what that news is. But then you say, okay, this is what's being done to address it. This is what the sunny side of things is. And you have to, and that's that's really on a leader to leader basis on how they do that. But that's it's it's a layering it's a layering problem in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it too. That's a great analogy of layering it uh, together. So they goes hand in hand. It's you know I think yeah that's a good, good way of putting it too because it's not like you're picking between two different streams, or rather merging two uh, concurring layers of um, of thought almost. Yeah. strategy um cool yeah man 
So we got like we got into like heavy duty uh, <laughs> concepts today. I really like the like the direction this took. Uh, really enjoyed having you on, Alex, and uh, for you to come on and sharing about all the things you do at Hopeful and how you uh, maintain a corporate structure there and your leadership style. Um, really enjoyed being open and frank about that. And thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much, and thanks for uh, thanks for the Friday deep learning exercise. That really that helped me get my mind going for the rest of the day. And uh, yeah, hopefully I'll be we'll talk again soon and stay safe. Perfect. I'm gonna cut the episode here, guys.